Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. Today we're going to talk with a former atheist who, upon converting to Christianity, encountered legalism and hypocrisy and judgmentalism in the church. We're going to talk about why she still believes and the journey she's written about in her new book in just a moment. My guest today is Mary Jo Sharp, a former atheist who came to faith in Christ, and she's going to share some of that story with us today. Uh, But today, she is an assistant professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University, and she's also the founder and director of Confident Christianity Apologetics Ministry. Now, some of you may remember the Christianity Today cover story called The Unexpected Defenders, which featured some pretty serious heavyweight women apologists, such as Nancy Piercy, Melissa Kane Travis, and Holly Ordway. Well, also featured on that cover uh, story was our guest today, Mary Jo Sharp. And so she's recently written a book called Why I Still Believe, A Former Atheist's Reckoning with the Bad Reputation Christians Give a Good God. That is a great title. She lives with her husband and family in Portland, Oregon. You can connect with Mary Jo at confidentchristianity.com. So Mary Jo, I'm so glad, so glad you could stop by the podcast today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Well, we're seeing quite a few of what people are calling these deconversion stories. And it seems just it seems like every time I open up Twitter or Facebook, everybody's talking about it. And it's basically the story goes, these Christians that are raised in the church, raised in Christianity, and then they begin asking some difficult questions. And maybe they don't realize that there are robust conversations happening surrounding some of these questions or... Perhaps they've encountered some hypocrisy or abuse in the church environment that they grew up in. Um, Maybe they grew up really sheltered and unexposed to other worldviews and ways of thinking. But you represent sort of the flip side of that story, Mary Jo. You weren't raised in a Christian home. And so I want to invite the listeners into your backstory a little bit. Give us some background into your story. Where did you grow up? Um, I know your family was non-religious. What, did, what does that mean? Were your parents really strongly against religion? Or was it more of just something that wasn't really on their radar? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I did grow up in the Pacific Northwest. And for people who are familiar with um, Oregon, Washington, um, Idaho, these areas, they specifically Oregon has been quite a non-religious for some time. I actually found an article about this dating way back. Um, I believe it was from the 1960s, you know, already dealing with the non-religious nature of the people who were living up here. And, uh, so the environment wasn't steeped in like a cultural Christianity, which, which I did experience when I was in the South, there were a lot more people who were Christian and, you know, their daddy was a preacher or their uncle, or they, you know, they grew up in church, but, uh, my environment wasn't like that. I knew a whole lot more people who did not grow up in church. Um, my mm. family, my family did not go to church. Uh, they were, my, my parents actually had stopped going to church back when I was very young. So, um, in discussing that with them, there are some various reasons. There's some hurt that happened there. I think, um, with my father, there was, um, disbelief going on that he wasn't committed to the beliefs of the church. Mm. So, um, they stopped going when I was too young to remember. So my experience growing up was outside of church. And I, I, what I knew of Christianity was really what I saw on TV and in the movies. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty shallow. Yeah. Pretty shallow stuff. Um, 
So I didn't actually know what to think about Christianity. And I had some skepticism about organized religion in general, specifically since I grew up in a time frame when there were some major um, televangelist scandals. And that caused me to say like, oh, you know, these people are just asking for people's money and it's for people who need all the stereotypes. Like these people must need this. They must have, it must be a crutch. You know, I don't need that. I'm a smart girl, blah, you know, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 all those kind of (laughs) stereotypes. That's what I thought of Christianity. Um, but one of the things that growing up in the Northwest did for me and, and, and my parents did for me is that one of the things is they loved nature and we grew up in a very beautiful part of the country. So my dad took us all over. He, he took us camping everywhere and taught us a great love of the outdoors and of nature. He taught us to wonder at Mm. the power of the ocean and, you know, I, I also grew up when Mount St. Helens erupted and it had something like the, the power of like 15 atom bombs going off. And it was just such raw power. It was very impressive mm. to me. So I grew up with that. My, my family was also into the arts and sciences. And so we watched a lot of um, opera and symphonies. And I myself am a mu- musician. I taught band in the public schools for a while. And my, my dad love science and nature shows. So I grew up with this steady diet of like science and nature Mm. shows. In fact, he was a huge, he was a fan of Carl Sagan. Wow. (laughs) So I got the, these, you know, I had these conflicting messages going on in me that look at all this beauty in the world. Is this all for nothing? Because like the Carl Sagan message is, you know, we're the, the pale blue dot. We're just basically, we don't have, there's no meaning or purpose in the universe. And we're just off in this far corner of it these conflicting messages began to run around in my mind as I got older as a teenager. And right at that time when I'm having questions about meaning or purpose to life, uh, I have a high school band director who is burdened. He's a Christian and he's burdened for me. Mm. So he, uh, he takes a chance to, and, and basically a, a real big chance because he's a teacher in the public schools and he witnessed to me. And he wow. gave me, he gave me a, a NIV one year Bible and said, when you go off to college, you can have hard questions. I hope you'll turn to this. Wow. Yeah. And I read that Bible. Um, I went faster than the plan because I was really shocked at how it would, didn't, it didn't sound like the mythology I had read growing up. Um, especially Luke where he's just giving reports of things and then just moving on. Mm. Um, like, Jesus would heal somebody. Jesus would sit and raise somebody from the dead. And, and Luke just reports it. And then he's like, and the next day they go into town and <laughs> right. like, wait, that's amazing. And he's like, yeah, okay. So this happened, but then he moves on. And these kind of things started to impact me as I was reading them. And I came around to believing that there's probably a God. So I, I started checking out churches for the first time on my own when I went off to college. And I finally found a church that um, gave a clear explanation of the gospel and a clear call to Jesus as my Savior. And by that time, I was ready. And I, I made that commitment to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior because he, he made sense to me. He, he made sense of the experiences I had, the wonder that I had in nature, and my thoughts about what is this all for. Yeah. 
Well, I similarly grew up in a sort of non-Christian area. Now, I grew up in the church and in a very Christian environment, but growing up in Los Angeles area, it just it, it was like you were a Christian or you weren't. And so I can kind of relate to when you when you get to the Bible Belt. I remember moving to Nashville in 99 or 2000 and going to the YMCA and seeing people read like the Left Behind series on the exercise bikes. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you're reading a Christian book in the open, like, you know, where everybody can see you. So it's really true. Like those environments can can really impact the way that we think about things. Now, at, at some point, uh, I'm, I'm thinking before your conversion to Christianity, you actually declared yourself an atheist. Tell us about that. When did that happen? And, and what sort of series of events started that off? Okay. Yeah. So I, this is, it's, I'm a Pacific Northwestern atheist. So there's not like a, a real <laughs> declaration going on. <laughs> so I, I don't know how many people understand that, but like, I don't know. I, when you get in environments where there's like overt cultural trends, like in the South, there's like cultural Christianity. I think you tend to get those very declarative atheists. Yeah. That's uh, a really good point though. It's sort of just in the air, I guess you're saying in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. So well, growing up, I just didn't, I didn't know to call myself an atheist. I actually didn't encounter that term until later on. Um, I would have said that I was, I just didn't have belief in God and I didn't know what it was for. And I mm. didn't know Christian terms. Like if you'd asked me if I was saved, I would have said from what? And I, I had no concept of that. And some people disagree with me. They say, hey, that doesn't sound really atheist because <laughs> they want, they believe you should make like a sincere, educated commitment to non-belief. Mm. But I've also heard atheists defending the reason why they're not going to give arguments in favor of the non-existence of God by literally saying, hey, I just don't believe. I'm just mm -hmm. not committed to any belief. And I think that's kind of where I would fall. I did not believe in God, but I didn't have like a researched or reasoned um, belief there. It was just, I didn't have any reason to believe in God. Right. Well, I was just in Oregon in the Eugene and Portland area a few months ago and did quite a bit of hiking on those beautiful nature trails. So I, I, I'm envisioning what you're talking about when you're, when you're talking about the beauty of nature. And I suppose as you, as you grew up around all of this beauty, I know for me, when I look at something like a tree or I look at even the sky and, and the clouds and things, it, it just seems kind of crazy to think that that just appeared out of nowhere with no intelligent mind behind it. Was, was some of that going on in your mind when you were around all of this, this beauty of nature? Yeah, I wouldn't have known to form it that way. I think, I think, um, for me, the, just the impact of beauty and the experience that I had in it, I, 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 felt something, you know, like, and I call it in my book, the call of the transcendent. There was something mm. that I felt like this was for something rather than it was just, you know, it, it you know, it comes into existence out of chance and out of, you know, sort of evolutionary, um, natural selection. And then it just goes away. So we just mm. die and that's the end of it. So I, for me, it was really, what is this for? Uh, cause it seems to have meaning and my experience, my daily experiences is that this does have some meaning. Like this is actually beautiful. It's not just my own subjective opinion of it. So right. these things, like I said, wouldn't have framed it that way. Cause I was too young, but, um, as I'm reflecting back on it, I'm thinking, yeah, that's, I was really strongly drawn by this beauty all around me and wondering, uh, about the meaning of all of it. Mm. 
So coming to faith, uh, reading the Bible, and and then you heard this gospel presentation, coming from the background you came from, church must have been quite a culture shock. You know, church has its own thing. It's got its own sort of environment and culture and, and things like that. So in your book, you talk about some of that. Uh, specifically, you mentioned the Sunday that you came to commit yourself to the church for the first time. And a lady shamed you for the dress you were wearing. And I think there's probably a lot of people listening that can relate with with that. I've heard stories even from uh, people that are close to me where, um, in fact, my mother-in-law tells this story if she's listening. Hi, Thelma. But she tells the story <laughs> of being in church and um, she had cut her hair or something and they weren't supposed to do that. And so the lady behind her was like tugging on her hair just to shame her <laughs> for doing it. So tell us about that. How did how did like that situation affect your thinking about the church or you, more specifically your, your relationship with the church or specifically that church? Uh, did you know what happened and did you stay there? Did you move on? Um, how significant was that type of experience for you? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was. <laughs> I love the culture shock because it was culture shock for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know church environments. I don't know what to do with them. And I'm from the Northwest, which is already different from the South. So yeah, I'm walking into this church and I, I want to say, I want to, you know, draw attention to the fact that I was a new brand new believer. And so I'm excited because I've just made my commitment to Jesus. Um, Mm. so what I was expecting when I'm walking into this church was I'm expecting to be welcomed, to be, you know, there are going to be people who are just as excited for me as I was that basically, you know, all these things that I've been thinking about this, the goodness and truth and beauty I experienced in the world, these are going to be the people who were seeking that. And so I was excited to like be in fellowship with them because they were going to be awesome at, you know, seeking after God. And so to have the very first thing, like I'm walking into church with my, I was actually married by that point and I'm walking into the sanctuary with my husband and it's the pastor's wife. She's actually standing at the entrance to the sanctuary greeting people. And so the first thing that she says to me is not like, Hey, Mary Jo, so excited to hear about your commitment to Christ. Welcome into the body. You know, we're (laughs) we're excited to have you. The very first thing she says is, Oh, honey, we need to find you better clothes. Oh no. And and I'm, I was, I didn't know what to think of that. So there's sort of like an angry confusion going on when I, when it finally starts to settle in. Yeah. Uh, I, my husband took it as he's like, Oh yeah, we'll take care of it. Um, I'm looking down at myself and I'm like, I'm a Northwesterner. We're not flashy dressers. <laughs> I don't understand what's going on here. Yeah. And, um, so it, it was just, I was not expecting judgmentalism. Um, yeah. and what that did for me is that, yeah, it really caused me to distrust from the very beginning, the people who said that they were leaders in the church, the people that you know, we're trying to teach the rest of us how to become Christ-like. I started to distrust them from the very beginning. Mm. That's just one incident. Um, I've had so many incidents. We got involved with ministry. And so you're, you're a target when you're, you know, pastor or pastor's wife. And people have for, you know, two decades, people have been commenting on what I'm wearing. I could wear super conservative. I could wear not. I could grunge out a little bit. I could not, I could put a little bit of color in my hair or not. And it's constant attention to that. And I'm, for me, this is just so, it's so heartbreaking because that's not what I'm here for. I'm Mm. here to experience worship with the people who are seeking after God. That's what I want to do. 
I want to have that transcendent congregational experience where we're all gathered together to give praise and glory and honor to God. But what ends up happening is I end up having to hide myself at the back of the congregations so that I don't, so I'm not seen. So I'm not an object of conversation so that people will not focus on me. Mm. And what that did was it showed me that it started to cause me to wonder if people really believed what they said they believed, or if this was more like a social club, you know, where they came to do something like to have to do. And that, that's, it's not, you know, I don't have the experiences that some people have of abuse by somebody in the church. I have more of the daily breaking down Mm -hmm. because of uh, what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins in his, uh, Mm. just every day that, that sort of, um, not showing me that what, not majoring in the majors, right. Showing me that the minor issues of life are the things that are most important to them. And that began to really just break my heart because I couldn't, I wasn't able to find people that were truly seeking to grow deeper in their knowledge with God, to really hold themselves accountable to what Jesus said about loving uh, your neighbor as yourself. I didn't find that. And it, Mm. it, yeah, it literally just broke my heart uh, over and over. Yeah. I can relate with that a bit. When I was in the music business, we we were a group that was aimed mostly for younger girls. And so we dressed young and all of that. And I'm not kidding. Every single night we'd get some note passed to you through our road manager to us, you know, criticizing our pants or criticizing the way we wore our hair or, you know, too much makeup, not enough makeup. I mean, it was just always something. So I can, I can certainly relate with that. And you actually wrote in your book that, that you had been looking for a life changing Christ-focused community, a church family with real accountability to a transcendent and objective good that they pursued as actually true, and it was nowhere to be found. And um, I mean, I'm just reading that even today. I, we, I, we love our church and we go to a great church, but I think that there's always sort of this tension of there's like a mix of people, probably in every church, of some that are like you said, just it's it's what you do on Sunday, and you dress a certain way, and you go, and you you be seen, and 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 it's part of your thing. But then there are many people who are really looking for this life changing, Christ focused community um, that wants to go deeper. And and so when you when you observed these types of things, when it became really difficult to find a place like that, how did that impact uh, your new faith in Christ? Yeah, that. So I'm I'm a I'm not a person who easily backs down from commitment. <laughs> so <laughs> it didn't like automatically make me think, oh no, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> These right. people are just a bunch of hypocrites and this isn't true. What it did was over time, um, it began to eat away at my faith. And it got to a point where I started to like do some self-talk. Like, why do you, what, why are you doing this? Like these people aren't even as nice as your atheist friends growing up, like the people who had no church in their lives. So what are you doing here? And so what it did was it caused me to begin to doubt about, um, first of all, I doubted about other people um, and what they said they believed and whether or not they believed it. Then that led me to say, well, hey, look at yourself. Why do you think you believe in God? Do you have any reasons for that? You know, if somebody were to ask you, why does God, why do you think God exists? I really didn't have anything I could say in response to that. Uh, Why do you think Jesus rose from the dead? You believe that, but why do you think that? So it caused me to doubt my faith to the point of, um, hey, I got to make a decision here as to whether or not I believe this is true. 
And that, that was really hard for me to come to that point because I think by the time I got to that point, I really didn't want it to be true because I was so sick of uh, Christians in the church. I was disgusted by what I saw. And I thought, you know, it'd be easier just to give this all up and leave all this hypocrisy, these hypocritical attitudes and behaviors behind. Mm. So um, I had to kind of keep my desire in check about, I was really wanting it to not be true, but I I remembered there's a story about, um, about when I was uh, coming out of the story. It's my story. When I, when I had my daughter, my brand new baby girl, I was coming out of the hospital holding her and, um, I walk out of the hospital doors. And the first thing that greets me is this cloud of cigarette smoke. Mm. And I'm like, ah, man, this is gross. It, it was a big one. <laughs> I was like, yeah, uh-huh. I go to look to see where this is coming from. And it's coming from the doctors and nurses who were taking a smoke break. These are absolutely the people that would be telling me don't smoke because it'll kill you. And there they are being extremely hypocritical on this smoke break. And I thought this, this was the thought that kept like coming back to me when I was going through this time of doubt was like, ah, that's right. Just because people don't always act like something is true. It doesn't mean it isn't true. Like that can't be the litmus test for whether something's true or not. And so this whole encounter in the church where I was looking for this life-changing Christ-focused community and I wasn't finding it, kind of pressed me into, well, what do you actually believe? Do you believe this is true or not? And you got to figure out why you think that. Yeah. That's a really interesting thing you said a minute ago when you said you were wanting it to not be true. And I think sometimes when I'm looking at social media and sort of these internet atheists that kind of think we're all so stupid, uh, <laughs> they, they often will say, you're just looking for something that will comfort you. You're just, this is what you want to be true, so that's why you believe it. And I think that that's really interesting that in your case, you were actually looking for reasons for it not to be true, but then you kind of landed on that it was. And so uh, you were a music teacher early in your career, and you were actually about to pursue a master's in music education, but then you just took a U-turn and you decided to pursue a master's uh, or into the, but you decided to enter the apologetics program there at Biola. And so, I mean, at the time, your husband didn't even know what apologetics was or that it was something you were interested in. And, uh, And so, of course, this podcast is about apologetics. Many of my listeners will be familiar with what apologetics is, but what, what led to that major career change for you? What, what caused that U-turn. Yeah, the, the U-turn came. Um, it was actually kind of funny because there's only been two times in my life where I've made like sudden, sudden changes that were like this big of a change. The first one was when I met my my husband. Like when we went out on our first date, I was like, "Oh man, I'm going to marry this guy." Uh-huh. <laughs> that was the first time I had that. I I tend to not be that way. I tend to be like an over analyzer. Well, the second time was when I was going through this time of doubt. Um, I, I had gotten some materials to help me kind of work through it. And one of the things I found was this Christian research journal. And I was trying to you know, dig through their articles and see what they had to offer as well. And uh, I found a, I found a art, like an advertisement inside of there for uh, Biola University. And it was one of those other moments in my life where I went, oh, my gosh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get this degree. And it was huge because I had been... I had spent a couple years 
looking for a master of music education. Cause I had my whole life planned out from the time I was a sophomore in high school. Like I was going to go get my music ed degree. I was going to teach in the public schools, get my experience for five years. Then I would get, I'd go back into, uh, get my master's of music education, work at the university level. And then I was going to take a symphony orchestra. I even knew mm. which one, Alisa, yeah. I didn't even know which one. <laughs> I was to take the Boston Pops symphony orchestra from John Williams. Like that wow. was the, that dream. Yeah. Uh, so to see this article and, or this advertisement and to, to look at it and go, Oh my gosh, this is what I'm going to do. It was one of those moments where I, I didn't expect this. I didn't plan to be an apologist. This was not what I wanted to do. I always wanted to have my back to the audience conducting the, the, the orchestra or the band, um, but not be up in front defending apologetics and being fr- or defending my faith and being from the Pacific Northwest you know, um, being a public Christian, that was not ever, ever in, you know, my thought life. (laughs) I never, not the plan. Um, so it was a big change for me, but yeah, it really, really was born out of that struggle, you know, for Mm. what is it that's going on here? It was born out of that tension of what, what drew me to Christianity was not what I found when I got here. Um, and so that really, that, that tension really pushed me into this big change. We're talking with Mary Jo Sharp about her new book, Why I Still Believe. If you're a Christian parent, you may be listening to this thinking, man, there has just never been a more important time for us to model the real thing for our kids, to teach them that faith isn't just an intellectual exercise. It's not just something we do on Sundays. It's, it, it involves all of us. It's, it's community. It's our intellect. It's our emotions. It's our relationships with other people as the body of Christ. Impact 360 is a great ministry that exists to equip the next generation in all of these things. And they offer summer experiences on their beautiful campus in Pine Mountain, Georgia. There's Propel, which is a week-long experience. There's Immersion, which is a two-week experience for high schoolers. If you want to register your high schooler for either one of these experiences, you can go to impact360.org. Use my name as a promo code for $50 off your tuition. That's Alisa, A-L-I-S-A. I've been there and I've witnessed both of these experiences. And it's such a joy to see the life-changing impact that Impact 360 makes in the lives of young people. So check it out at impact360.org. Well, and so essentially your job is to help others understand and to share arguments that support the truthfulness of Christianity. Uh, But you yourself have walked through doubt, and that's something actually I've been talking about quite a bit on the podcast here lately is, is doubt. Like, what is doubt? What are some healthy responses to doubt? What are unhealthy responses to doubt? What kinds of doubt uh, is there, why do, why do Christians doubt? And there are so many different reasons people will come up with for why, uh, somebody might be doubting, whether it's like a moral issue or it's an intellectual. Like when I went through doubt, my doubt was 100% intellectual. It was just, I had never thought through some of this stuff intellectually before. And I, I didn't really particularly struggle with what 
I learned would be called the problem of evil or the goodness of God. How can a good, if God, why evil? And how could a good God allow evil and things like that? But, but those are types of things that, that cause a lot of people to doubt. Mine was just, it was just purely, is this true? Is, is everything that I've believed all my life, uh, just some sort of comforting mythology that, that I've been taught because it, it feels good to believe it. And so that was the, the type of doubt that I walked through. You've walked through doubt. Um, if you would take a minute and talk to us about what that was like walking through doubt, what do you think was underneath your doubts and how has, you know, basically your job being to help people understand and share these arguments, but having walked through doubt yourself, how does that kind of help you when you're teaching and speaking to others about the, the reasonableness of Christianity, about the rationality of faith? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what did my doubt look like? Uh, it really, it was kind of a mixed up mess of a lot of things. <laughs> mm. I had sort of, um, for me personally, this is not commentary on anybody else. It's not commentary on your story, but for me personally, uh, I had this hubris of thinking when I got into, you know, doing the arguments for Christianity that, that I was just being intellectual, like, Oh, I just oh, want to yeah. find answers. That's it. You know, like as soon as I have my answers, I'll be good either right. way. You know? And so I had that sort of hubris because, you know, I didn't understand that really there was a lot more going on in my background that I had been hurt by the church. There were painful mm-hmm. experiences that caused me to question and to raise these intellectual questions. And I did actually, uh, you're talking about the problem of evil. That was one of the things that I yeah. struggled with. And I still, I still struggle with it because I don't like it. I don't like yeah. the fact that people are suffering and they're in pain and this is the world that we have. So, yeah. um, my doubt was, um, a mix of, you know, there was emotional reasons, which, um, also caused me to do some intellectual questioning. And, um, but then there was also the the one thing I I mentioned in the book that's sort of different is that I had to remember that I, I began to distrust persons, right? I distrusted persons, the people of the church and what, and the leaders and, and the authorities. And so that transferred over to my distrust of God because he's a person, right? And I didn't, I didn't really think on that real well when I was going through doubt, like, oh, obviously if I can't trust people, there's going to be some element of that that transfers over into um, my mm. trust of Jesus because he's a person. And so there was some of that going on. Um, now my, my having gone through doubt uh, help, and, having, and also having an atheist background or this background where I didn't know what Christianity was for and I thought it was kind of weird actually really helps me talk to people um, who are, who have completely different views from me because mm. I, I can kind of, I kind of get it. I kind of get where they're coming from. You know, like I used to think Christians were weird. I used to think these things. I used to be very, very skeptical of, um, organized religion in general. So, um, rather than being intimidated by people who totally disagree with me, uh, I tend to be more interested in their story. I want to know how they got there. I want to know what their arguments are, what their reasoning is. What's the backstory? I, I kind of want to know if they've ever taken their arguments all the way out to the logical conclusion of those beliefs. So I, I, what I hope is that I hope my background makes me a little more empathetic towards those who are either doubting or who adamantly disagree with belief in God or with Christianity. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we're all struggling through life together, whether we acknowledge it or even know it. And um, we're all here together. So my desire is to truly help and not to hinder others. I, I think that's something that we can all learn from because 
I've, I've noticed even in myself when, like when my daughter has a skeptical question about the Bible or something like that, my immediate reaction is sort of like tend to tense up inside <laughs> and, and cause I want her to think the right thing about it, you know? And so I always have to talk myself down and just sort of engage her and, and, uh, just, be be casual, like be cool, childers, just be cool, you know. <laughs> because when I was walking through doubt, um, there was someone in my life who was just very unthreatened by the questions I was asking, and it was a very inviting environment for me to bring more of my questions because there were other people in my life that just reacted in fear and and just wanted to shut down what was happening. Just you know, don't think that way, don't ask those questions, don't doubt. You should just just believe, and and there was you you could even just, it was like palpable fear coming from them. And so I love what you just said about that, because I think that's something that as Christians, all of us can really learn from when people uh, might even be really hostile to what we believe or skeptical or, you know, to remember, number one, there's probably something else going on underneath that. Like you said, when, when you thought you were sort of losing your faith for rational reasons, but then you realize something else was going on, something deeper, some wounding from the church or some wounding from, from something else. And I think that can often be going on. And so that's really good advice for all of us is to, is to uh, be interested in the other person's story and maybe, you know, ask some well-placed questions to, to flesh out if, like you said, if they've taken their argument to its logical end. And, um, I think that that, that would provide an environment for a lot more fruitful conversations. Uh, Cause I think also some people who are outside of the apologetics world have this idea of apologetics that it's just like, oh, everybody putting everybody else in their place. And it's just these stuffy professors telling everybody what's right and wrong. And, and there's not really a lot of engaging on a personal level. And so I think that we have the opportunity, uh, all Christians, not just apologists, but all Christians to, to create a more engaging environment for people when they are struggling with mm-hmm. doubt or when they yeah. have uh, questions about the faith and things like that. So I think that was, that was really good advice for us. So when yeah. you were in grad school, you became close friends with Nabil Qureshi and David Wood. And for anyone who's not familiar, especially with Nabil, Nabil uh, grew up in a Muslim home. He wrote an incredible book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. If you haven't read Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, put it on your list. Definitely read that one. And and a great thing about that book, too, is that if you get the audio book, if you're a listener, he reads it himself. I love when authors read their own books because then I just feel like they're telling me their story. And so you became good friends with Nabil. And, and David, who taught you that people and God were more important than having your own little haven the way you wanted to have it. Um, flesh that out for us. What, is, what does that mean? And how did your friendship with Nabil and David change your life? Yeah, so uh, David and Nabil, I met them while I was in school, like you said. And uh, they. one of the things that really impressed me with them, I mean, right from the start, right from the very first time we sat down and had dinner together during school was that they, uh, um, valued my opinion. It was like, they respected me. And, um, while I don't want to sound like I'm slamming all evangelical churches, I didn't get that sense as a woman, especially as a pastor's wife, that I had a place at the table, um, for discussing theology or philosophy. Mm. Uh, I was sort of my husband's wife and that was it. That was sort of my role was to be his wife and his voice mattered. And mine was sort of, you know, can you teach the children's ministry or can you lead the children's choir? 
And uh, so they were the first ones that I encountered that really valued what I had to say, valued my interest in philosophy and, and theology and thought, hey, this would be a great idea to like partner with you to do this sort of serious work. Uh, so I felt like they were the first people that really took me seriously for what I could contribute to uh, the Christian community. And that, that in of itself right there was life-changing, um, that deep respect that they you know, gave me. And then David and Nabil, they also, we, we ended up, so what, what happened? Cause we haven't talked about how did I get involved with these guys? Well, I offered after I met them and I, and I heard them talking about what they were doing, they were doing a lot of debates and I foolishly <laughs> said, <laughs> Hey, um, I would love to review one of your debates. Would you guys like the next time you have one, are you going to post it online where you know, kind of listen to it and, and write a review? And they were like, sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, that like I, I listened to the next debate they had and they um, took it and posted my review and and not just that but then they started to say hey like I said they actually valued what I had to offer so they started to um, suck me into their world like of debate <laughs> <laughs> bring me out to do help them host um, debates and organize them and do ministry with them and so that's that's what I mean like they got me involved and then eventually they challenged me to do my first public debate. Um, which I was terrified of. Uh, yeah. Now you debated a Muslim, is that right? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Nabil actually was the one that like publicly challenged me to do the debate. He was like, all right, that's enough sharp. You got to get out there and, and offer your stuff. Um, and wow. this, this was another thing that was so life changing about my relationship with them is that they taught me about the selfishness of my own heart because I, I didn't really want to be a public Christian. You know, I was, mm. I was raised in a culture where religion was considered more private. So do what you want, but really keep it to yourself. And I did not like the idea of placing a public target on my back um, Mm. for two big reasons, which was the loss of my autonomy. Like I was able to do whatever I wanted to do, mostly in the way I wanted to do it. You know, there was some restrictions just by law and by the fact that I had to have money and a job and all that stuff. But but basically, you know, I was like a nobody and I could do what I wanted. So that loss of autonomy and the sort of the loss of control, because being in the public light, people can say anything about you and you cannot control their narrative. And and I know you know that because you've Mm -hmm. been in the public light uh, for quite some time. So they taught me um, that, you know, I was, I was holding on to that control. I was holding on to that uh, being able to control the image of myself and the narrative about myself and all that. And I valued that uh, over loving people and showing them Christ and showing them the truth. Mm-hmm. And so they, they were a real, a real big wake up call. You know, when I'd see the anguish that Nabil had from leaving the community of Islam and how it affected his family. And, um, and here I was, you know, I didn't have that situation. My family they didn't ostracize me. They probably thought I was a little weird, but they didn't ostracize me. And I just began to see, they changed my thought process on what am I doing with my life and how am I using it for the kingdom of God? So that was really the big, the big changes that Nabil and David brought into my life through their friendship. That's very cool. So you mentioned a, a minute ago that you struggled with and still struggle with the the problem of evil, what, it, what we call in apologetics, the problem of evil. It's sort of a, a, a term we put on 
any kind of struggle, it has to do with looking in the world and seeing extreme suffering and poverty and abuse that people are going through and reconciling that with the character of God being good and being all powerful. If he has, if he's all powerful, why doesn't he change it? And if he's, if he's good, you know, why doesn't he do the, why doesn't he do something about it? And so how have you sort of approached that problem in your own life? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, this is a tough one to deal with because, you know, there's the experience of evil and then there's the, like the sort of theorizing on why it's here and, and, you know, how did it get here? And if we say God's good, then all of like what you just said. So um, at first I want to address the experience of evil. You know, like, I'm not going to be able to speak into anyone's life and say, here's why you're suffering. And, and I never want my thoughts on the problem of evil to come across in that way, because I do not know why any individual suffers. Uh, none of us do. Uh, we're not told that. So when we get to the, the sort of theorizing and, and how I've um, handled the problem of evil and what I think about it, I just want to make that distinction is that I don't profess to understand why any one person suffers or any group of people suffer. But in examining good and evil in this world, I had to come to the point where I was wondering, why did I think these were real things? Um, because I know even growing up when I, I didn't have a grounding for good and evil, you know, why I thought they were real or how they came to exist, I still believed in them. I still acted like there was, there was a way to, to be and to, you know, like these things should be done. I had that language of ought and should in my life. And I believed in things like just and unjust, uh, fairness and unfairness. And so I, I couldn't reconcile where I was getting these kind of ideas from, um, now, in handling the problem of evil, that's, that's what you're talking about. Where, do, where does everybody get this idea that there's good and evil or right and wrong? Mm. And, you know, in a universe that's void of good and evil qualities, you have to come to terms with there's no right or wrong. There just is. So, it, you know, you could go to the route of saying, well, there are, there's no such thing as good and evil. This is just what is. Mm. And I, I, I couldn't agree with that view. And I don't really think I ever have. Um, and I don't actually think anybody can live as though that's true because people constantly convey that they do believe in good and evil anytime they use that language of things ought to be or should be a certain way. I've heard that with Nabil, yeah. like, he, or that's not fair or yeah, yeah, like that. they can't live it out. What, what they're really saying, and this is where we get down to it. What they're really saying is that they believe in some kind of standard. There's some point of reference, uh, for what is good and evil. And their experience doesn't match up to that reference point. Mm. So what we call that evil when our experience isn't the way that it should be or something's not uh, good, then we say it's a lack of good. It's not good. It's evil. So as I thought about uh, these things, I realized I did believe in good and evil. And there, there's so much work that goes on with this that to try to sum it up in like a minute, two minutes, 30 seconds. It just does not do it justice because there's the work of Alvin Plantinga and then all of the people that preceded him, you know, in church history. Uh, So I just, I came to the point where the Christian story made the most sense of the existence of good and evil, that God is the standard of good, that what he made was good, that one of the things that was good that he made was that he made human beings with autonomy. They have free will and they have the ability to make decisions that have real consequence. And that's actually a good thing. Um, but we chose to use that autonomy for destructive and selfish means, uh, which is not good for us and results in destruction and death 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so what God did was he didn't leave us there. He actually took on the consequence of our abuse of his good gifts. And so he dies on the cross. He's actually doing something about that problem of evil. And then he rises from the dead to defeat the consequence of our um, abuse of his good gifts. And then, so he rises from the dead to restore us back to the goodness of the relationship that he intended for us, right? So that we can, we don't have to be a slave to destruction and death, that we can be freed up to do what is good, what is more fully human, what is redemptive, what is the way that we are meant to live. So the Christian story actually made sense to me in handling the problem of evil, because it it acknowledges good and evil is real, and then just doesn't leave it there, but actually there's something that has been done about it of cosmic significance, right? Our salvation. So that's... That's how I've handled the problem of evil, and uh, it gives me hope because I know the world that I see isn't the way things have always been, so it's not the way things always have to be. Or always will be. You know, uh, John Stott, I think, said something along the lines of when he was talking about the problem of evil, he had he had visited some sort of Buddhist monastery, and he was looking at the statue of Buddha, and he was thinking about all these other religions and uh, philosophical systems that that try and give an answer to the problem of evil. There's the Buddhist sense of detachment, just detaching from the world, and 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 then there's there's practices you might get from different systems or or thing you know meditation or this or that things that you can do to to lessen the effects of it. But but he noted that with Christianity. You have a God that that didn't actually just give us an answer to the problem of evil, but literally became the answer himself by stepping into creation mm. and taking all of that on himself, and then uh, essentially providing a plan in a way. As it says in Revelation, every t- you know all of our tears will be dried. There'll be no more crying, no more death, no more pain. So there, there's coming a time when 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 all of those things are all of that evil will be done away with for good. And in the meantime, he's giving people the opportunity to respond to him and to to accept him and to believe on him uh, to be a part of that new kingdom and that in that new world and so I think that that's such a beautiful way to look at it and that's where I think Christianity brings an answer to that problem uh, unlike any other religion or philosophical system mm-hmm. in that it's not just giving an answer it actually gives you a God that becomes the answer yeah. and um, and and I think that that's that's a really beautiful way to look at it as well and and like you said kind of building on the foundation of everything you were saying about free will and all of that it all fits together um, so as as we kind of close out here you went to a lot of churches that a lot of other people might have left the faith over. They might have said, this is just, they're all hypocrites. Uh, I don't want to be a part of this. Or they might adopt some sort of real progressive Christian theology where they're kind of retrofitting the Bible and, and Christianity to fit what they want it to be. Do you still love the church? Do you still love the bride of Christ and and why? And, and there's the tough question. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, you know, to be honest with the listeners, it's one I still struggle with um, because I love her, mm. but I don't always like her. Yeah, I said <laughs> that actually interesting that you would word it like that, because at our current church, when I when we met with the pastor, 
I was just kind of sharing some experiences that I had had. And I said the exact same thing to him. I said, I love Jesus's bride, but I just don't really like her right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I I compare it. I was talking to my husband about this and I was like, you know, it's like a marriage relationship. (laughs) There are days when you feel like you belong there. And then there are days where you wonder what in the world were you thinking? (laughs) Right. Like, there are days when I want to walk away and say, I don't need this in my life, right? But I made a commitment and not just to the Lord, but to his people. Like I entered into community mm-hmm. with the believers of God. And so I go back to a couple of things here on this. Uh, first of all, in what we were just talking about, the problem of evil. You know, when, one of the things, the problem of evil, going into such depth with it, I actually teach a class on the problem of evil at the university and like mm. really getting into that, I start to see the real depravity of every human being, like how bad it is. Yeah. Um, so I, digging through the problem of evil really helped me to understand this tension of um, that people are have an indescribable beauty in them, but at the same time, they have this raging evil that's going on that leads to destruction. And, and that's in every single human. So, and that's in myself as well. Like I'm going to hurt other people, um, probably in the ways that some other people have hurt me. And, uh, and, and also though I have this understanding that people are, that they have this sinner saint relationship or this, uh, beauty of salvation alongside the ugliness of hypocrisy in their life. Um, even though I understand that it doesn't mean that, that, that I'm never going to get hurt again. In fact, there's still all the same kinds of people in the church. There's still controllers and people who have been hurt and haven't dealt with that hurt in productive ways. So they're going to hurt again. There are people who are insecure. There are people who are arrogant, ignorant. There are people who, I mean, it's just on and on. Cause we are just people. We're like everybody else in the world. Yeah. So, um, I, I've come to understand that first of all, this is going to happen again. So there's an element of risk. Uh, and my, my relationship with the, the church right now, I describe it as risk taking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, uh, the thing that I keep in mind, like that at the end of the day is sort of, it's what Jesus said when he's giving the sermon on the Mount and he's talking about loving your enemies, the Luke six passage. And he's saying that you should do for others as you want others to do for you. Now he didn't say if they do it back, he right. just said, you should do for others the way that you want others to treat you. And this has really impacted me. Like, how would I want others to treat me when I'm at my worst? Mm. Would, I, would I want them to walk away and never return? And I think back to the, the rough times in going back to the marriage example, when I didn't, you know, I didn't, the rough times in our marriage, when I'm thinking, how did Roger stay with me? I've right. said some awful damaging things and heated arguments, especially regarding church ministry. And, uh, mm. So, and he didn't give up on me. He showed me that sort of sacrificial love uh, that says, you know, I'm, I made a commitment to you and I'm sticking it out. And so for me, I continue to love the church, generally speaking, because it's what I would want from other Christians. I want them to love me uh, when I'm at my worst, even if and when they do not return that favor. Um, so I've come to realize I can't change others, but I can change myself. So I changed my approach to the church. I don't, I mean, there's, I've grown wiser. I don't have the unrealistic expectations that I used to have of like, Hey, these are going to be the best people ever. Let's go. (laughs) You know, like I've started to see them for who they are. They're amazingly beautiful, 
and yet horribly destructive. So that's kind of how I live in the tension now with Christians. And though I've, I was heartbroken at what I found, there's just such hope uh, through what Jesus did. And what he did was for the church as well. You know, like it's not, yeah. that's his people, the believers, right? The people who love or who have committed to him. And I mean, he did it for the whole world, but also for the church. And I have to remember that, you know, that um, he had to die for them as well because they're not good. Yeah. They, you know, they're, they have all their problems. So, And I, I think, think remembering too that, that the, the one thing I always try to keep in mind too is that, I look back at my younger years and I, I can actually see faces in my mind of people who were incredibly patient with me when I was uh, prideful or uh, just, you know, short with my words or, or just impossible <laughs> to deal with, I'm sure. And I, and I think back at those mature saints that were patient with me and just remembering that, you know, everybody in church is at a different place in their sanctification process. You know, it's, it's, um, there, you, you could have someone who just is just literally coming off of drugs, you know, gave us, gave their life to, to Christ and, and they're getting clean and it's, it's rough. And then you've got somebody who's a little further down the road. And, um, and, and so that's what I try to remember anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good thing. And that's one of the things I'll point out in the book is you often see me getting angry with myself for my own selfishness and for the kinds of things that I say about believers in the church, because mm you know, I realize that I have my own issues too. I have my own arrogance, my own hubris, my own things that I'm working through. So there have been people who were patient with me, like you're saying, and uh, I got to remember that as well. Um, so yes, I still love the church. It's a rocky relationship. Yeah. <laughs> well, the book is called Why I Still Believe, A Former Atheist Reckoning with the Bad Reputation Christians Give a Good God. Comes out this week, so go get it wherever books are sold. Again, connect with Mary Jo at confidentchristianity.com. Mary Jo, thanks so much for coming by. It was such a fun uh, conversation to have with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love being on the show. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes.